Welcome to St. James, everybody. Thanks for braving the cold and for uh, uh, coming out here. And uh, welcome to everybody who's uh, joining us on the live stream right now, too. Uh, we're glad that you're here. If I can do a couple of announcements real quick. As far as I know, everything is on uh, normal this, t- today. Uh, so uh, Sunday school after uh, third service for the little kids, youth confirmation at 1130, 12.15. Um, adult Bible study uh, will be in Deuteronomy chapter 4 today, 12.30 to 1.30. That's on Zoom. Let me know if you want an invitation to that uh, study. Wednesday evening, uh, though this is something different, Wednesday evening is uh, Ash Wednesday, so we will not be having our Zoom Bible study, but we'll be meeting here in person for Ash Wednesday, and then on Wednesday evenings at 7 between then and Easter, so uh, midweek services. That'll be here in person and also live streamed as well. So uh, sign up online if you would like to come in person to that. Uh, A couple things uh, here let me point out to you. the date for the Lutherans for Life March on the Arch is wrong. It's not March 13th, it's March 6th. So make a note of that if you want to be involved in that. New members class tonight at 6. Uh, we are going to be talking about, we've been putting this off, we are going to be talking about infant baptism tonight at 6. So join us if you want, uh, w- would like to study that. Uh, ladies Bible study Saturday morning, men's Bible study Tuesday morning, those are all on and uh, that's all I have. So let's go ahead and stand, and uh, let's begin worship uh, by praying and asking God to be with us. Father, we pray this morning that you would give us your presence. We don't want to primarily know more stuff about you. We don't even primarily want to sing praises to you. We want you to come and give yourself to us. We want to be in your presence. And may our praises and the things that go on in our mind and the things that happen in our hearts and the things that happen in our relationship with each other, may they flow out of your gift of yourself to us this morning in your word and in your sacraments. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's continue in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Let's confess our sin to God. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Be the God of your people today. We confess that we have worshipped too many other gods. We have devoted ourselves to all too many different values. Turn our hearts to you again, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Be the God of your people today. We confess that we have visited all too many sanctuaries. We have tried to find the sources of life in all too many other places. Turn our hearts to you again. O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, be the God of your people today. We turn to you and to you alone to be our God, our only God. Forgive our sins. Give us spiritual integrity. Give us wholeness and holiness. Answer us in the name of Christ, for He has promised to intercede for us. It is in Him that we pray in the fellowship of His body. Amen. Because of Jesus, God has forgiven all our sin. Hear the gospel of Christ from 1 John. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And He is the expiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Amen. From Psalm 99. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at His holy mountain. For the Lord our God is holy. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. 
The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. You may be seated. The Old Testament reading is from 2 Kings 2, and it's the story of Elijah transitioning his ministry over to Elijah, his disciple. When the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elijah were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elijah, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elijah said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elijah and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Elijah said to him, Elijah, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. And so they came to Jericho. And the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elijah and said to him, do you know that today the Lord will take your, away your master from over you? And he answered, yes, I know it. Keep quiet. And then Elijah said to him, please stay here for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. And so the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them as they both were standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water. And the water was parted to the one side and to the other till the two of them could go over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elijah, Ask what I shall do for you before I'm taken from you. And Elijah said, Please, let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, You've asked a hard thing, yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you, but if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven, and Elijah saw it, and he cried, My father, my father! the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hey, there's something I saw this week. I, so I read this. I didn't really study this text because I wasn't going to preach on it, but I saw this and I thought it was cool and I don't really know what to make of it. So like a brainstorm amongst yourselves and let me know when the service is over, but pay attention to the sermon. So uh, if you follow like the path that they take, you know, they go from, he's like, uh, Elijah's like, I got to go to Bethel. And then he's like, I got to go to Jericho. Then I got to go to the Jordan. And then he slaps the water and he crosses and he, the, the water part. That's actually the exact reverse of the path that Joshua and the people of Israel took. You know, they went across the, the parted Jordan and then went to Jericho and, and did what they did there and then on to Bethel. I, I don't know what to make of that. But anyway, if you can help me out, that'd be good. All right. The epistle reading is uh, 2 Corinthians 3, and it's about Moses. And if you saw the front of the bulletin, we're talking about the transfiguration of Jesus today. So you know where these two readings are going. All right, you had Elijah and the king's one, and now you're going to get Moses in 2 Corinthians 3. And what's going on here is that Jesus, or Paul is contrasting the glory 
of Moses' ministry with the greater glory of Jesus' ministry. Here's what Paul says. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. And now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel's veiled, it's veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Holy Gospel according to St. Mark, chapter 9. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said, and Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he didn't know what to say, for they were terrified. And the cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. So uh, every year, church year, uh, we celebrate uh, Transfiguration, and we do it right in between uh, Epiphany and Lent. This is appropriate as a good reason for this, is because um, the Transfiguration functions as the pivot point. That's not really good. It's more like the keystone in between 
Epiphany, which is, you know, the word epiphany, Jesus is revealing himself. Jesus is showing people who he is. It could be through teaching. It could be through miracles. It could be forgiving of sins, like in Mark chapter 2. It could be at the transfiguration when who he is really gets revealed. And now, starting with this, we're headed into kind of the Lent focus of the Gospels, where after the transfiguration, Jesus starts to focus on hammering into his followers' mind that I'm about to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to suffer. And so the transfiguration like captures both of these things. So uh, this this week begins Lent, and so uh, we're going to do transfiguration. So what what I want to talk about today is uh, Peter's response in verses 5 and 6. I mean, there's so much here. I uh, was talking to somebody from one of the community groups this week, and the community groups, this particular community group, gets the sermon text for the upcoming week and talks about that. And one of them said, like, we were reading that thing, and there's like eight things in there that are just, there's like, what do you do with them? Like, it's so confusing. And uh, I said, well, that's actually like a good insight, because this is a strange, like, the transfiguration is so weird. There's not like, it's a one-off thing. You never, and at any other point in the story, you never get these exact characters in the same place at the same time for something like this. There's a ton that's confusing. So when, when I was reading this time, I was reading verses 5 and 6 this week, where Peter says to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses, one for Elijah. For he didn't know what to say because they were terrified. So I was reading that, and I, I, I think that, and I might have said this to you in previous years, I think that I've, sometimes I've given off the vibe like, you know, it's kind of a little bit of a comic relief thing, you know. Look, look at Goofy Peter doing goof, Goofy Peter things. Like he's, let's make, let's make tents for you. Like, I didn't know what to say. But I don't, I don't think that's what's going on here because A, he's terrified. The, the text makes the point. This is not some sort of like, you know, shtick. He's actually frightened, frightened to death. And the second thing though is that confusion is a really, that's, that's actually what I think when I read this text. What's going on here? Like, I, I, what does it mean? It's not like this simple little meaning. And so, what I realized this week is that there's a lot of confusion in this text, and by studying the text, you don't get that confusion alleviated. <laughs> that's, what, that's what I came to. Like, I studied this text, and I'm still confused. And I think that the things that are going on in this text can only be understood if you read the whole story. Otherwise, it's just this weirdo event where they go up on this mountain, and like all of a sudden, Jesus is glowing bright colors, and there's like these ghosts walking around, and then there's voices from heaven. And then it's over, and Jesus says, just forget what you saw until I rise from it. Like, what's up with that? So, I, you know, I, Peter's confused. I'm confused, too. Let's talk about this. Well, let's talk about what, what's confusing for Peter here. You know, Peter's like, Peter has ideas about Jesus. Peter has ideas about the kingdom. Peter has ideas about what his role is going to be in the gaining and in the, the maintaining of the future kingdom. All of these things Peter's confused about. So let's talk about that a little bit this morning. Uh, Peter's confused about who Jesus is. Peter's confused about what the kingdom is. And Peter's confused about who's going to pay for the whole thing. And that comes out in this, that, that comes out in this one, let's build tents for you. <laughs> that, that comes out there, okay? Okay, so first of all, uh, confusion about who Jesus is. L- let me try and get at it this way. And again, this is, this is so mixed up. Like the people in the 745 service, who knows? They're probably sitting out in the parking lot still with their heads spinning. I, I have no clue what, this is like, it's crazy. Okay, Moses and Elijah, what are they doing here? I went back through my notes from previous sermons. I, and I, we, were, we were going through Jonah last year, so I didn't preach on the transfiguration, uh, but we, we were reading through Jonah together in here. 
But two years ago, I, I, I was looking at my notes, and I think I said something like this. What are Elijah and Moses doing there? Moses is a representative. He, he's he's the, the law guy, right? He's the Mount Sinai guy. He handed down the law. And Elijah represents the prophets. And there you have, on the Transfiguration Mount, you have the law and the prophets um, that are kind of backing up. This is Jesus. Uh, I see some of you taking notes. I apologize because I'm about to say I don't think that that's right. Uh, I, I think that maybe that's, I mean, that's, that's certainly valid. You know, the, the law and prophets do, do, do speak to who Jesus is, of course. Uh, Moses and Elijah, both, of course, prophets, and both, of course, very interested in the law. So that, that's not that that's not true, but I think here's what's going on. What do Elijah and Moses have in common? What's one event that they both experienced? And here's a clue. It happened on a high mountain, and it involved a transfiguration of sorts, although we wouldn't use the word transfiguration. Well, here's what they have in common. Some of you, some of you know like the story from Exodus chapter 34, where Moses, he's, you know, he's up on Mount Sinai, and he's been talking with God, and he's angry at the people because they already, you know, they, they already screwed up once, and he had to throw the tablets. He didn't have to, but he threw the tablets, and he's like, can we do that again, God? My bad. I, I, I blew up the last ones you made. And they're talking, he and God, and God's like, I kind of want to kill all those people down there. And Moses is like, please don't do that, you know. That reflects on your, your glory. And they're talking, and Moses at one point says, hey, you know what? I want to see you. And God's like, I don't know about that. Like, people normally can't see me, else they disintegrate. And Moses is like, no, really, really, I, can, can we, I, I really want to see your glory. And God says, okay, here's what I'm going to do. We're up on Mount Sinai. It's just going to be me and you. I'm going to put you, there's a small cave over there. I'm going to put you in the cleft of that rock. And I'm going to pass by, and you can't see everything, because seriously, you would blow up. But I'm going to let you see a little bit. And he does. Moses is kind of hidden where he can just see out through this cave just a bit of the glory. You know, it kind of narrows his vision down so he can't see the whole thing the cave does. And he sees a bit of this glory, and God says, you know, those miraculous, beautiful lines in Exodus 34. As he passes by, he, he, he you know, proclaims Yahweh, Yahweh, you know, who is gracious and merciful, etc. So very, very important. That doesn't happen to a lot of people. It happened to Moses. It doesn't happen to a lot of people. Did you get, did you, did you, were you guys aware that it happens to Elijah too? Exact same thing. Interestingly enough, in the exact same place. I don't know about the same cave, but on the exact same. Okay, so 1 Kings 19, you don't have to turn there. 1 Kings 19, uh, Elijah has just had this battle with the prophets at Baal. And he's coming down off the high of that. But Jezebel, who all those prophets work for, is ticked off at him. And she vows, I'm going to kill that guy. And so Elijah takes off running. You remember, some of you remember the story. He takes off running. And, and he, he heads south. And he's going to Mount Sinai. It's crazy. I, I, why is he wanting to do that? Right? So anyway, I'm going to read to this. 1 Kings 19, verse 8. Elijah arose. He ate and he drank. The, the angel of the Lord gave him this food. And he went in the strength of that food. Check this out. 40 days and 40 nights. It's almost like a reverse wilderness wanderings. To Horeb, the Mount of God. Now, Horeb is another name for Mount Sinai. Elijah goes to Horeb, the Mount of God. Why? Because that's where Moses saw Yahweh, and Elijah says, I've got to have that or I'm going to die. God, I want to see you. Same thing, though. God's like, you can't handle that, mister. Instead, what happens is, God says, go into this cave. It's the same thing. Tell, tell him, go in this cave, and I'll give you a little slice of it. Now, it's not so much visual this time as it is natural. 
you'll, you'll know what I mean if, if you if you've read the story. Like he's inside this cave, and all of a sudden there's this massive storm outside of the cave, but God's not in it. And then there's this massive earthquake, and God's not in it. And then he hears this tiny whisper, and that's God. Anyway, what happens next is not. It's basically the scene where you know Elijah says. Hey, God, I, I wanted to come and meet with you because I just want you to know I'm the only one in the entire universe who actually believes in you. And God's like, yeah, you're kind of a drama queen. There's actually a whole lot more, but I'm taking care of you. You got a mission. Let's go do it. That, that's the scene there. But, but it's interesting to me, though, that Moses and Elijah both experience, here's what, they both go up on a high mountain to experience directly the person of God, Right? What's happening here? Moses and Elijah on a high mountain experiencing directly the character and nature and person of God. Now, I want you to think about this. Okay, From, from Peter's perspective, and this is what, so I, I just, the, the, the main point that we're kind of working under, and I know that I'm rambling and kind of spinning around here. The main point, though, is that Peter is confused about who Jesus is. Check out what Peter says about the three tents. Peter says, this is so cool. God, it's good for us to be here. Let's make three tents. One for Jesus, for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, and we'll be here. Now, what's up with the tents? This is one of the problems with the transfiguration is like if you're going to talk about it, you kind of got to explain 15 things that like are really kind of historically not in our vocabulary. Almost all commentators understand the tents here to be a reference to the festival of tents. One of the three great Jewish festivals, you got Passover, you got Pentecost, and you got the festival of tents. And in the festival of tents, which Jews to this day celebrate, Jews will live out in their backyard for a week in homemade shelters. You, you, know, you can't go to like Walmart and buy like a, a nice tent. You have to make homemade kind of, it can be nice, it's not, but it, can't be, it has to be something you made. And you live in that shelter for a week. And the main point, according to Jewish scholars, is this. We are the people who lived in tents for 40 years, which was tough. But in those 40 years, God himself lived right in the middle of us. God himself, with the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud, God was right there. And we lived in this tent, and he was living in a tent, and we were all together. And that has slowly but surely gone away. In Jesus' day, by the way, they, they, they celebrated the Festival of Tabernacles, the Festival of Tents. And what you were is one of the three festivals that you were required to go to Jerusalem and do. And you would get there, you would take your tent with you, and you would get there and you would find some empty spot in the city of Jerusalem around the temple which was still standing in Jesus' day, right? And you would set your tent up, and you would be like, this is who we are. We are the people who gather around the temple. Now, almost all Jews recognized that in Jesus' day, Yahweh had still not come back and lived in his temple. But the reason they would celebrate this festival is that someday he's going to. We're remembering in the past, out in the wilderness when he did. We're looking forward to the day in the future when God comes back to his temple, and we all live with him. And the best way for us to embody that is, as tent people historically, to live in these tents together in the presence of God. Now, put, put, hold that in your mind and think about what, what Peter's saying here. Peter's saying, hey, Jesus, many not all commentators, but many commentators believe that Peter, when he sees what's happening, the presence of God and the power of God and the voice of God on the mount, thinks, this is it, new creation, we're here. God is finally wrapping up all these things and coming back to live with us. And you see what Peter's saying here? Peter's saying, yes, Moses was the prophet who first got to see the presence of God. Then Elijah got to see the presence of God on the high mountain. And now Jesus is the third, is the third guy who gets to see the presence of God on the high mountain. Hey, 
Moses, Elijah, Jesus, let's build tents for you. You guys are the three presence of God on the mountain prophets. Let's build tents for you and let's sit here and let's be in the presence of God together. And that's when the voice comes out of the cloud and says, this, Jesus, it's basically echoing what happened at the baptism, if you remember from, from a few weeks ago. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And then everything goes. See what Peter was doing? Peter is saying, Jesus, you're the prophet who's going to show me. You're the prophet who's going to take me on the high, up, up on the high mountain and get to see God and show me God. And what the Father is saying, no, Peter, Jesus is the prophet who's showing you himself. Peter believes that Jesus is a means to an end. Peter believes that Jesus is the tool that's going to get him to the new creation. And God is saying, no, Jesus is the new creation. This is my beloved son. We all do this, right? So what's Peter? Why is Peter confused about this? It's because he has, for a long time, had a view of Jesus that is a means-to-an-end view, right? Why did Peter take up with Jesus in the first place? Because Peter's like, this guy is the guy who's going to beat Rome. Like, I have faith in him that he's going to defeat Caesar. I'm following him. What's Peter doing? He's like, I, I want help. I don't want I- I to live under the thumb of Rome anymore. This guy, Jesus, can help me. Jesus, take me there. Jesus is a means to an end. And Jesus has to disabuse him of that notion. Jesus is not a, Jesus, it's not Jesus' job to show Peter God. It's Jesus' job to be God in front of Peter. It's not Jesus' job to give Peter the kingdom. It's Jesus' job to be the kingdom. Jesus is not a means to an end. He is the goal itself. And you, you know, but, but, you know, so you and I are the same way, right? All of us bring these desires, these goals, these needs we have to Jesus. Sometimes it's political. Sometimes it's like, you know, Jesus, I need my person in charge in this country or in this state or in this town. Like, can you, can you do, Jesus, can you do that for me? I'm praying to you. Can you do this for me? Sometimes it's, you know, it's, sometimes it's physical pain. Sometimes it's loneliness. Sometimes, you know, you need help with your marriage. Or sometimes it's, you know, you need your kids to obey. Sometimes it's like, you know, I'm really struggling financially. And, but, but all this is good, right? All this is good. This is who you should take this stuff to Jesus. But sometimes we, conf- we get confused about what Jesus is there for. He's not the means to the end of, you know, it's not Jesus' job to, to give you a happy marriage. It's Jesus' job to be your husband. It's not Jesus' job to, to give you financial security. It's Jesus' job to be your security. Does this make sense? And what Peter's experiencing here on the mountain, and James and John too, what they're experiencing on the mountain is this first taste of Jesus, not as the prophet who's going to get him to the promised land, but as the whole promised land himself. Not as the portal to God, but as God himself. Not as like the guy who's going to win the kingdom, but the kingdom himself. Okay. I hope that makes sense. Sidebar here. All right. A little sidebar. It's maybe kind of a little bit of a rabbit trail here, but I kind of want to say this. You might think, you know, so Peter's like, Peter's following Jesus. Jesus, I want you to win the kingdom from Rome. Like, God, I hope this, is, I hope this guy's right. I hope this guy's right. You, you, you know, Peter might be like that. And maybe Peter's thinking, like, this is a sign. That, do you think this, that the transfiguration is a sign that proves to Peter, this guy's the real deal? You would think that, right? We, we all want signs. We, you know, and, and a lot of us will say this, you know, uh, like, God, just show me that you're there somehow. I need some sort of sign. 
Here's the deal, though. Here's the deal with the signs. This is certainly a powerful event in Peter's life. He, by the way, he's writing about it in 1 Peter still, in 2 Peter. He's st- this is still on his mind, this transfiguration of it. It doesn't prove anything to Peter. You know why? Because we ain't like that. If God would come down and speak in your ear and say, Joe, I'm real. Believe in me. You know what you would say? You would say, I ate something funny. I'm, I'm having like these auditory hallucinations. That's exactly what you would say. You know why? Because paradigms don't shift with data. Paradigms don't shift with data. There's a fantastic book by Thomas Kuhn. I think I've mentioned this to some of you before. It's called Structure of Scientific Revolution. I know it sounds horrid. I'm not, I'm not saying that you should read this, but it's a really interesting book. In, in the book, The Structures of Scientific Revolution, he actually, it's, a, it's a book in which he coined the phrase paradigm shift. And he's examining how do, how do scientists move from believing one thing is true? Like in the book, it's basically Newtonian mechanics. How do they go from that to believing in quantum physics? How does that happen? That completely different way of seeing the world. And he basically says, look, it doesn't. It's like almost impossible. It happens, but it's like generations-long surgery. People, people have beliefs. They get data. They don't believe the data because their beliefs tell them the data can't mean what the data says it means. That happens for generations until, in gener- until the data becomes so heavy that it just crashes. Here's a quote from Thomas Kuhn. Let me give this to you. Here's what scientists never do when confronted by even severe and prolonged anomalies. Like, I have this theory. I'm testing it out, but there's this weird bit of data that doesn't fit in. What do scientists do? Do scientists say, okay, my theory must need to be adjusted for this? No, scientists never do that. Scientists say, all of us, we never do this. Scientists say, okay, well... I don't understand that. Let's keep on going with the theory. Or let's try and cram that into my theory somehow. Though they may begin to lose faith and then to consider alternatives, Kuhn say, they will never renounce the paradigm. Paradigms don't go away. You're like this too, right? If, if you don't believe in ghosts and you hear something walking around upstairs, is your first move is, oh my gosh, I think there's a ghost up there. No, you know what you're going to do? You're going to interpret that data as, I don't know, maybe there's somebody up there. Maybe I drop something and it's bouncing. You'll do if you do believe believe in ghosts, though, and your kids are up there like playing volleyball in their bedroom. You hear that? One of the thoughts you're going to think is, "I wonder if that's a ghost," because that's your presupposition, right? Here's where I'm going with this. Peter, what's his presupposition? His presupposition is Jesus is my political Messiah. God gives Peter a sign, a sign from heaven. You are my beloved son. What does it do for Peter? Six months later, he's standing next to that girl in the courtyard saying, I have no clue who that guy is. The, the guy actually heard the voice of Yahweh from heaven. He saw Jesus transfigured, and even he can't process that data into his paradigm. It's too locked in. Here's what I'm saying to you. This might be super skeptical of some people. They might be like, you know what, if God exists, I can't believe in God. If he existed and he was super powerful, he would show himself to us. And I say, well, maybe he will, maybe he has. You just wouldn't believe it if he did. Maybe it's you. Maybe you're like, like, God, will you just show me a sign that you're there? And I'm telling you that if he did, you wouldn't believe it. You wouldn't believe it. That's not the point of the transfiguration. The point of the transfiguration is not to prove to you who Jesus is. You can only learn that in the ebbs and flows of life with Jesus. You can only learn that in the, the rhythm of years and years. This is what Thomas Kuhn says. It takes generations. Do you want to know, do you, do you want to know and experience the realness of God? You're going to have to go through suffering, and you're going to have to go through glory, and you're going to have to experience all these things together. And you're going to have to say, I'm not going to allow, I'm not going to allow 
either one of these to trump the other because that's what you're going to do. That's what you're going to do. You're going to allow your presuppositions to use the data to trump the alternative data. Let me, real quick, let me give you an example. By the way, the next two points aren't as long as this one, so just hang in there. Okay, so this is what happens is that people, here's what we do as Christians. I mean, this is almost a cliche what I'm about to say, right? So you're going through bad times and you're like, God, I can't even believe that you're there. You know why? It's because the rhythm of life with God also involves glory. And like, if it's the bad times, you're like, I can only see the bad times. I'm only interpreting my relationship with him through the bad times. He must not be there because God is a God of good times. Is that what we think? In the good times, though, what do we do? We just forget that God's even involved at all. We don't really need him at that point. And so what are we doing? Whether it's good or bad times, there's a gap between us and God. It could be like, I, I don't need him because I'm, ha I'm having a good time. It could be like, God, you're not there because I'm having a bad time. But either way, the only way that you can work your way through this is to sit at the foot of the cross and go through the, bad, through the rhythm of the bad and good times. More on that in just a second, by the way, too. Okay. All right, what, need, what Peter needs is a real lifelong experience of Jesus, both in his sufferings and in the glory. It's the only way he's going to work himself into getting through this confusion. The, the, the transfiguration is not going to do it, all right? So it's going to take, but basically what I'm saying is this, like you need to come to the rest of the church services for the rest of your life. Because that's what, it's, there's not one text that can solve this problem for you. Happy text ain't going to do it. Sad text ain't going to do it. Life with Jesus, life with Jesus, that's the only way to do it. Okay, moving on to the next thing. Peter, Peter, tied up with Peter's view about Jesus is also his confusion about what the kingdom is. Peter's not really exactly sure what's going on with this whole kingdom business. And I want you to step aside. Forget about the, you know, the resurrection of Jesus. And you can even, if you want to, forget about who you know Jesus is right now. And think about what Peter's experience is this week. Look at verse 2. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, etc., after six days, okay, so Mark starts off this story with after six days. Mark doesn't usually give you like a calendar appointment type time stamp like this. And when he does, you should know that it's important. What he's saying is, is here's a story here. Six days, here's a story here. In other words, it's not the six days that's important. It's these stories are connected. These stories will interpret each other, okay? So now, think about what's happening. We, we got to go back and we'll look at what happened six days ago. Very famous story. Jesus uh, said, this is in Mark chapter 8, Jesus says to his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they, they give him a bunch of answers. And then uh, Peter, and Jesus said, but who do you guys say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Messiah. And Jesus says, yes, that's right, uh, but don't tell anybody because you have no clue what you're talking about. You got the right answer, but you don't know what you're talking about. Actually, let me explain it a little bit to you, if you don't mind. Understanding this is just between me and you at this point, Peter. I'm going to go die. And Peter's like, no, 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 that, that doesn't make any sense. If you're the Messiah, you kill, you don't die. And Jesus says, no, you're, you know, get behind me, Satan, that whole line. You're thinking the thoughts of man and not of God. Actually, if anybody wants to be a part of my kingdom, you've got to take up your cross and follow me. And then right after that, he takes him up on the high mountain and it's miraculous. So think about Peter's, think about Peter's week. Like, is Peter coming or going? It's like Jesus is messing with him. So, so Peter has, Peter's like, you're the Messiah, and Jesus is like, yes, okay, good, but I'm going to die. Peter's like, I don't get it. And then he takes him up on the high mountain, and he's like, but I am the divine son of God. And Peter's like, holy cow. And they come down from the mountain, and Jesus is like, okay, just keep this between us until I rise from the dead. And Peter's like, what's up with this dead stuff again? Now, it's our, our, our reading that you have in the lectionary for today cuts off at verse 9, but he says in verse 10, 
uh, Peter, James, and John kept the matter to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead might mean. Jesus' very next verse says, or two verses later says, look, it's, it's written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. Okay, so put yourself in Peter's shoes. What's the kingdom, Peter? What does the kingdom of God look like? And he's like, oh, I thought it was like good. Like this guy's the Messiah. And then I thought it was bad. He's going to die. We're all going to lose. Then I thought it was good because he knows Moses and Elijah and like God says he's his son. Then I thought it was bad because he was like, actually, I'm really going to die. What's Jesus doing to Peter? He's trying to do what we talked about in the first point. He's trying to disabuse Peter of the notion that the kingdom is what Peter thinks it is. You know, Peter's confused. Peter thinks that the kingdom is political, and Jesus is like, it's not going to be like that. I'm actually, politically speaking, I'm a dead man walking. Like, I'm going to get executed. It's, it's something else. It's, it's something else entirely. This is, a, it's important for us to get this, okay? This, what, what Peter's going through is not cruelty on Jesus' part. It's not like he's not trying to spin him around and say, okay, let's see where you go the, you know, when you're all dizzy. What he's trying to do, to go back to the previous point, is he's trying to get Peter to live inside of the good and the bad of the kingdom. The Eastern religions believe, so hang, hang with me, give me grace to hang with me for a few minutes. The Eastern religions believe that the fundamental reality at the heart of the universe is suffering. So, uh, you know, the, the, the Buddha, in his first, the first point of his big, um, the Four Noble Truth sermon, which is the very, very first Buddhist sermon he preaches, the very first point, and some of you will have heard this, is all of life is suffering. He, he, he's, he's not trying to be discouraging, he's just saying that every, all of life is, he, he literally says in Pali, he says dukkha, bad wheel. All of life is like trying to push a cart with a bad wheel on it. Everything that you do is going to be broken. Everything that you do is going to involve suffering. For the Buddhist, for, for the Eastern religions, the good things in life are just tricks. They're illusions. Love, peace, tasty food. It's all tricks. The physical world is trying to get you to like carnalize your mind. In fact, a famous story, Buddha had a son, and um, the son was born right as he's making this transition from being rich guy, Buddha was a rich guy in his younger days, to like, you know, the Buddha. And he names his kid, check this out, he names his kid Fetter, F-E-T-T-E-R, like the iron bracelet that goes, like when you're in a dungeon that goes around your wrist. Why did he name his kid Fetter? Well, he said, because I love this kid so much, he's going to bind me wrongly to the physical world. That love is going, it's not real. It's going to go away. It's temporary and it's going to create suffering. So he named his kid Fetter and said, I love my wife and my kids so much, I'm going to, I'm going to have to abandon them. And he left them and went out and lived in the woods and pursued thinking about all life, life is suffering. Okay. So in the Eastern religions, suffering is the reality and good things are temporary and peripheral. In the Western religions, and I'm not talking about uh, Judaism and Christianity and Islam, I'm talking about materialism and individualism. In the Western religions, pleasure is, is the reality and suffering is the peripheral. This is why you freak out. Like if, like, you know, like if, you, if you're in physical pain, you're like, I, I need therapy, I need to go to the doctor, I need some meds, you know, I need counseling. Like if, if there's something wrong with our, you know, our relationship with our kids or our friends or you know, our spouse or you know, at church or whatever, you're like, this has got to get fixed. This is like, you know, I, I, I just need somebody to repair this virus. I need somebody to, to give me counseling. Why, why do we feel like that? Why are we so desperate to get help? Is because we believe that the fundamental reality is goodness and pleasure and that evil and suffering are peripheral and 
This is why when you as a Christian struggle, it's because fundamentally we're individualist and materialist. When we struggle as a Christian, we're very, very tempted to say, God, I, I just don't even know if you're here. Because if fundamental reality is, you call it God, you can call it pleasure, they're the same things. It's what's back of the phrase. Doesn't God want me to be happy? Then when, things, when we aren't happy, when we aren't having pleasure, there's something wrong with the system. Now, here's what I want to say. Here's the message of um, not just transfiguration, but epiphany in Lent too. As we're going into Lent, we're going to be focusing on the bad part of this too. Christianity is the only religion in the world that, is, that, that says, yes, both is true. Suffering is at the heart of the universe. Goodness and glory also at the heart of the universe. And until you learn, and we, learn to live in that, it's not necessarily a tension, it's actually just a, a reality. Until we learn to live in that, that suffering and glory are both there and they are both a part of who God is. We're not going to understand the kingdom. We're going to think like, well, things have to be going good or God's not here. You know, we, we do this. We, 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 we judge churches. We judge relationships. You know, we judge jobs based upon levels of pleasure, levels of happiness. And what Peter has to learn as he, as he goes through his own Lent, Mark uh, chapter 9 and following, is that at the heart of the universe is a God of glory, but a God of suffering. God is the God with wounds. The, the, the same God that stands on the mountain radiating white light is the same God who's going to, in a few short months, have blood pouring out of his body. They are both Christianity. They are both the kingdom. Your suffering does not mean that things are going wrong. The good things that are happening to you does not mean you're even doing things right. It just means that as a Christian, you're going to experience both of these things. And if we learn to see Jesus, I'm going to be very vague here, okay, because we're going to be working on lessons through this throughout Lent. But if we learn to see Jesus both in the suffering and in the glory, we'll be on our way to understanding what Peter, what Jesus is trying to get Peter to understand by spinning him around. I'm going to die. No, I'm really God, but I'm going to die. That's, this is the tension we need to live in. Okay, last thing, and we're almost done, okay? Confusion about who's going to pay the price. Now, this is the first time I ever noticed this in this text. And um, it's verse two. Verse two says, after six days, we, we just read this a minute ago. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Okay, that sentence is kind of awkward in English and Greek. And the reason why it's awkward, I was reading that this week, and I was like, that feels kind of funny to me. Like, there's two verbs there. Like, why does that sentence need two verbs? He took them, and then he led them up a high mountain. Okay, so the verb for took there is just the normal verb for took. Like, if you were speaking in Greek in the first century, and you said, you know, I took my cousin to the movies. That's the verb you would use. It's just, a, it's, it's all over the New Testament. It's that verb. The other verb is more rare. It only appears like 10, 11, 12 times. The verb that's translated, and led them up. Now, check this out. He led them up a high mountain. Most of the time in the New Testament, it's translated Check this out. This is seriously interesting to me. It's translated to offer up as a sacrifice. Well, I'll give you some examples. It's almost always. It's, it's so weird. So here, here's, here's one. This is from Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 7. It's talking about Jesus. It says, He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily. And the verb used for offer there, offer sacrifices, is the exact same verb, He led them up a high mountain. He led them up a high mountain. So what's, why, why, did, why, does, why is Mark using that? Why is Mark essentially saying, you know, he took them and he led them to be sacrificed up the high mountain? That's a weird thing to say. Those of you who are Christians are like, no, that, that's not right. You know, Jesus doesn't sacrifice people. But this is what it says. He led them up as a sacrifice. 
Well, here's what's going on. Let me, let, this is what I think. Okay. Going back to Mark 8, because again, you can't understand the transfiguration if you don't understand what's around it. Do you remember that conversation that Jesus had with Peter where he said, look, let me, let me explain something to you. If you want to follow me, if you want to be a part of the kingdom, here's what he says. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus does not say in that text, he does not say, I'm going to go take up my cross and now you come and follow me and you're going to get crucified too. Now he does, he does, he does, say, I'm going to go, he does say I'm going to go die. But he doesn't mention the cross. It's just to Peter and the disciples that he says, hey, if you want to be a part of my kingdom, you're going to die. We're going to go to Jerusalem and you have to be willing to be executed. So the cross is like, you guys know this, right? If you, if you murdered somebody in, in ancient Judea, you might get beheaded if the Romans caught you. You might be stoned if the Jews caught you. Crucifixion was purely political propaganda. That was, just for, that was just for rebels against Rome. And what Jesus is saying is, if we're going to do this revolution thing, you're going to die. And then, so he tells Peter this. Now, think, you're, you're in Peter's mindset, remember? And what you're thinking is, okay, this is a political kingdom. And what he's telling me is, I'm going to have to die for him. He's going to end up being the Messiah, but it's going to take my death. This is what all, all leaders do to their followers, right? Is like, I'm going to lead, but I need you guys. You're going to have to put in a ton of hard work. Maybe you're going to have to die. It's actually what the famous line that the Roman soldiers, the legions would say to Caesar, uh, you know, upon going to battle, Caesar, we who are about to die, greet thee. Like, we're dead men, you know. And Jesus is basically saying, you guys are dead men. You're going to have to take up your cross and follow me. And then he takes them up the hill to sacrifice them. And Mark, I, I, this is what I think is going on. Mark is saying this because he wants to emphasize that this is what you're called to do. You are called to take up your cross and follow Jesus, and you are going to be sacrificed for the kingdom. But now, here's the strange twist. Here's the turn of events. When they get to the top of the mountain, they don't get sacrificed. They get God. Right? Go back to Hebrews. This word means sacrifice, but, but look what it means. Several times in Hebrews, it takes on this flavor. Hebrews, verse nine, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28. So Christ, having been offered, exact same word, to bear the sins of many. First Peter, actually first Peter who stood on the mountain with Jesus. First Peter who probably, tradition tells us, actually helped Mark. He was the primary source for Mark writing his gospel. It says in first Peter 2, Jesus himself bore... And he uses the exact same word for let him up in Mark 9 too. Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. What is Peter saying? Peter is saying that Jesus came to me and said, you're going to have to die on the cross. For my kingdom For my kingdom to exist, Peter, you're going to have to die on the cross. Jesus actually took me up to die. And when it came to that moment, I couldn't do it. I didn't get it. I wasn't able to do it. And so he did it anyway. He did it for me. So I... I I think that I've probably preached to you guys before from Mark chapter 8. I probably have said to you, you have to take up your cross and follow Jesus. And so guys, here's what we got to do. We got to be ready to suffer for Jesus. I kind of maybe even spiritualized it, you know. We got to be willing to put on, we may even have to die for Jesus. You're not going to get crucified, but we're going to have to suffer for Jesus. I don't think that's what's going on there at all with those two things back to back. I think what's happening is Jesus is saying, you, you have to suffer for me. Check it. You can't. Even if you could, it wouldn't work. But you, have not, you, you don't even have the psychological capability to do it, Peter. You're going to have to die on the cross. Peter bails on Jesus, and what does Jesus do? Jesus goes up the mountain so Peter doesn't have to. Jesus goes up the cross so that Peter can run away. 
Jesus is faithful to the covenant so that Peter can abandon the covenant. Jesus dies for Peter so that Peter doesn't have to die. That's at the heart of your suffering. That's at the heart of the glory that you experience as a Christian is that the God who suffers, the God of glory, has actually embraced you in himself and taken on the heart of that suffering and the heart of that glory for you so that you don't have to, you don't have to carry the brunt of it, so that you can know in your suffering that God is there, so that you, when you suffer, will never have to pray, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that you in the Garden of Eden can run and run and he will follow you like crazy and be there when you turn around the next day. That's what's happening to Peter. That's what's happening. It's not really happening to the transfiguration. You've got to read more than just the transfiguration. But the little, he gets a little glimpse of it. He gets a little glimpse of it. The God who suffers is the God of glory, and he's our God. All right, stand with me, and let's pray, and then we'll have communion. Let's pray. God, we thank you for being such a good God and for loving us. And God, help us to be transfiguration people, and, and, and by that, Lord, uh, help us to be epiphany people and Lent people. Help us to be people who know and have tasted the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, but who willingly and readily sit at the foot of the cross and rejoice in his sufferings too, and see our sufferings and our glory through the lens of his sufferings and glory. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for us. Thank you for taking up the cross so that we wouldn't have to. Lord, in your mercy. Father, I pray that you'd be with everybody. Speaking of suffering, Father, with all those people who are right in the middle of suffering now. And I look around the sanctuary, and there's so many people who are struggling with so many different things. But if we can pray for a few of them, Father, and bring them before your throne, can we bring uh, Joyce again before you, Father, and pray that you would continue, please, God, pour strength into her body, uh, to ease her back pain, uh, take away the, um, uh, the clots on her lung, give her heart strength, Give her the energy to do therapy. God, be with Norval. Uh, give him uh, more good days than bad as he uh, struggles and struggles. Uh, give him lucidity of mind. Uh, give him health in his uh, leg, put strength in his leg. Uh, continue to protect him from COVID. I also pray this morning that you would be with uh, Chris's uh, uncle who uh, has COVID and uh, was just moved to ICU, that you would give him healing and that you would allow him to be, to be able to breathe uh, easily and on his own, and that you would allow him to come home. For all these things, God, and for all the suffering that people are going through uh, that's not been mentioned, and that I don't even know that's on people's heart, God, we pray for your love and mercy to meet those needs uh, where they're at. Lord, in your mercy. God, we thank you for uh, the churches in our area. We thank you for our sister LCMS churches, especially this morning. We want to thank you for St. Paul's and Wood River and Pastor Schultz there, and that you would bless that ministry, and as your word is preached, that people would get a glimpse of your glory and the suffering that's tied up with that, and learn to live in your love, learn to live in what the kingdom is, what your kingdom is, and who Jesus is for them. I also pray that you be with every gospel-believing church in this area, and as your word is preached, may Edwardsville and Glen Carbon gain deeper and more richer taste of your justice and righteousness and love and mercy. And may we all rejoice together at the way your kingdom is expanding and expanding and taking over our town. Lord, in your mercy. God, we can only pray these things because your son did go up the mountain so that we wouldn't have to. Because your son is our savior. Because your son did suffer for us and take up the cross for us and give us his glory. And so we come before you as brothers and sisters of your son, Jesus, and we pray this in his name. Amen. 
Let's confess our faith with the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence He will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now let's pray in Jesus' name the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For Thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when He was betrayed, took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and gave it to His disciples and said, Take, eat. This is My body given for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. In the same way, He also took the cup after supper, and when He had given thanks, He gave it to them, saying, Take of it, all of you. Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in My blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of Me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. You may be seated. So the thought remains. Still. 
Yeah. 